This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. special broadcast of Primal Screen in partnership with Melbourne Knowledge Week. This is Primal Screen, an evolving film industry. Uh, This is Primal Screen's first ever live in conversation event and it's also a 10-year anniversary of film criticism on Monday nights here in the Triple R studios, which started way, way back with um, the OG Plato's Cave crew Thomas Caldwell, Tara Judah and Josh Nelson. Um, It's also the final few days of April Amnesty. So if you haven't already, please do subscribe or donate and help keep Triple R on the airwaves. Um, We are all volunteers here on Primal Screen and it's your support that allows us to deliver this show every week. Um, And if you subscribe in the next few days, there's a whole heap of prizes that you can win just by supporting us during April Amnesty. My name is Flick Ford. That's what I was wondering. (laughs) I was wondering whether we had the introductions. We should probably introduce ourselves. I'm Flick Ford and joining me in the studio is my co-host, Paul Anthony Nelson. Hi, Paul. Hi, Flick. Hello, sports fans. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I just wanted to get that out of the way. But we're going to be shining a spotlight on the strength and diversity of Melbourne's film community. We're going to be reflecting on how our local film industry has fared in the global pandemic, Um, the ongoing impact of lockdown, um, travel restrictions and the evolving audience experience and the changing modes of film consumption in our new COVID normal reality. Um, and to help us with this extraordinary task, we have a superstar lineup of film industry heavyweights. We're going to be joined by the Director of Film at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, Christy Matheson. We'll also speak with Anthony Grundy, who is the Distribution Manager at Screen Australia. And we'll chat with film critic, film programmer and General Manager at Asta, um, uh, Zach Hepburn. So, in 2008, the federal government established Screen Australia uh, to support and promote the development of a highly creative, innovative and commercially sustainable Australian screen production industry. Now, today, Screen Australia offers support in the development, production, promotion and distribution of Australian programs. The last year has, of course had a very big impact on our local screen industry. And to help us unpack this further is Distribution Manager of Screen Australia, Anthony Grundy. Anthony, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's our pleasure. It's a, um, I suppose it's a bit hard to come to terms with what this year has been like for all of us. Um, and I don't know if this is too heavy a question to start with, but what has been the creative impact um, of the lockdown and this pandemic, do you think? Um, look, it's, it's, it's interesting. There was definitely some shows that very quickly um, included some themes around isolation and, and the feeling of, um, you know, just having our daily lives turned upside down. Um, a lot of film, um, a lot of online and TV, because I guess their, their production, when um, timelines are shorter, were very quick to put some of those themes um, into the production. Feature films, maybe it'll take a little bit longer for those to start filtering through, but no doubt they will because, you know, I think features really reflect back to us um, something about our lives and, and you know, feature film has that incredible ability to to say something about what's what's going on and no doubt we'll see that down, you know, down, down the track. Yeah, for sure. I was actually, that is one of the things I was really interested to discuss with you is like what kind of, um, yeah, pitches you're getting on this, whether we are going to have, um, you know, themes around um, isolation or general anxiety and, and medical horror. It's kind of interesting just from that perspective of how something like this can really shape um, what kind of films get created and, and kind of what stories we're going to be drawn to as an audience as well. So you've already seen that coming through? In online space, but I think, um, I mean, I, I mean, 
you know, the, in the feature space, there's such a, um, you know, we've uh, so much uh, different different types of things come in the thematically. Um, but I think that, you know, I think someone said to me recently that after 9-11, there was definitely um, a way of processing kind of that significant event on the world. And then that started to obviously filter through in the films that are developed and and only screened and and no doubt that this will have the same thing there's nothing off the top of my head as you know it's probably worth me saying that um my my role at screen australia is more in the distribution space so i i tend to work with things that are more finished anyway yeah. <laughs> um and and it obviously takes years for films to be developed and and um produced so I'm not too sure what is happening in in the development space because we we provide development funding for feature films as well. So, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting because oh, during the lockdown, um, as film critics, we were saying like the kind of films we want to watch is very much being impacted by the fact that we're going through a global pandemic. So, yeah, I think on both sides there's a lot of interest in this area and who knows, we might be sick of talking about, you know, disease and... <laughs> just no contagion. more Zoom movies, you know. <laughs> it's like host and that's it. <laughs> Um, also, I suppose, um, was Screen Australia during this time, were you still able to provide that funding support during the lockdown? Was there kind of a financial impact for Screen Australia? There was. The uh, Screen Australia, we didn't shut down at all. We, we started remotely, I guess, as everyone did. Mm. Lockdown, when it happened back in March, meant most shows had to just completely stop stop what they were doing and there's an expense that's associated with that kind of shutdown particularly for the really big films Mm. and so our role at that stage was I guess recognizing where support was needed financial support in particular Mm. to just make sure shows were kind of you know taken offline quickly and and effectively and then there was a, a period where we did a couple of things one one component was that we we launched um like a covid support fund where I think we've spent about $9.7 million for COVID-related expenses across about 100 projects um, across the sector to make sure that the productions can return when, when obviously, everything started ramping up again. And the implication to shutting down but also from a safe you know obviously a set is a a place of work for many people and and making sure that there was that um comfort coming back the other thing we did was there's uh we were part of the australian screen sector task force who created a um like a series of uh covid safe guidelines for producers to use to know how they can come back safely and uh, more recently, this is something that directly I, I'm, I'm working on, the federal government announced a $20 million kind of rescue um, funding for independent cinemas. So oh, kind of great. every, there's many sectors of the industry where uh, the COVID has had a really kind of negative impact and independent cinemas has, have really felt the, the pain of the shutdowns. For a number of reasons so it's great to be part of an initiative where we're able to keep cinema alive particularly in regional and remote locations because cinema plays such an important yeah absolutely and i think that it really can be defined in in financial terms because as soon as you know there was a lot of smaller and independent filmmakers and cinemas were obviously really badly affected by the pandemic and having to lock down and we've spoken Mm. to um we've had many interviews over the last year about that and um i think that that's really interesting as well the way to we you know it's so obvious but to preserve our film industry we really do need to have that financial support so that's really encouraging to hear that that's there Mm. um I'm kind of interested as well whether we'll see, um, do you think that we'll see a shift in the way in which these films are being made and distributing, like how we're deciding to distribute? Because I I, I wondered whether with all the issues where, um, you know, whether we'll, we'll, whether we'll shift away from traditional distribution and, and exhibition practices, do you think that will happen in the, in the following months? I do. And I think that it's not directly related to COVID. I think there were some, there are some kind of structural challenges that the theatrical, um, you know, landscape faces and have been facing for many years. Hmm. And that's partly wrapped up in, 
in the decline of, um, you know, DVD or traditional TV. So the, the business model around feature film distribution has been changing or eroding, if you like. And I think what happened when COVID came along, it kind of accelerated some of these structural issues that we're facing. Mm. And, and like you're seeing it, um, particularly with what's happening in the US with a lot of the studios starting their own streaming services, this COVID moment, uh, which turned the tap off from a cinema's point of view for this big American product. And I think cinemas realised that there's they were really reliant on big Hollywood blockbusters to drive major dollars through the door and, and keep, keep people coming into the cinema. So when that all was, a lot of the studios moved their big tentpole releases out of 2020, mm. um, it put a great pressure on cinemas. But at the same time, there's, there's a thing called the theatre theatrical window, which in Australia it's 90 days, and that means cinemas have um, the opportunity to screen a film and it, it can't come onto the home entertainment platform for 90 days. And this window has been very rigid for a long time. Cinemas really fight for it because it's a way of, of maintaining that exclusivity around going to the movies and, you know, leaving the house and paying 20 bucks. Um, yeah, so they fight for the windows, but then this COVID has created an opportunity where studios are now negotiating um, shorter windows and and moving really big, high-profile tentpole releases straight onto their streaming services. You might have seen Disney did that with Mulan. And they're also creating new um, kind of steps in the value chain that are good for them, but they they just work a little bit differently to the way traditional distribution worked. So, sorry, that was the long answer, but the short yeah. answer is oh, I think that we will continue to um, see the evolution of, of the way people consume content and um but having said that i still think that there's cinema is such a unique experience and the thing that people say a lot is you can cook at home but people still like to eat in restaurants and i think yep. the same is true for cinema where the experience of being in a dark room with a big screen you really can't create that at home and the occasion of going to the movies is the thing that what what makes it special and um and i think from our point of view there's something the value of, from a cultural point of view, of um, coming together and, and, you know, watching a film like High Ground or even The Dry and, and Penguin Bloom, it's it's very special and you need that in cinema experience to, to make it um, unique and a special occasion. So I think cinema's still going to be fine. Um, <laughs> the the studio and the, the window models are up for debate. Who mm. knows where we're going to go? I know you've got some guests on later that can probably talk more specifically to the changes in the exhibition landscape. Um, but I think a, a lot of it is audience-led. The mm. audiences are, they've, they've had an opportunity to sit on their couch for a year and and really do a deep dive into Netflix. And and while that's great and that's an important component of the ecosystem, um, yeah, I still think cinema's, cinema's the bomb. Yes, <laughs> cinema is the bomb. Anthony Grundy's in Australia. Uh, um, I, I was wondering with that because a lot of that stuff um, with the window windows shrinking and and in some cases being abolished um, is often happening from a global pers- perspective being led by America with um, with the Disney plus stuff as you mentioned and with HBO max and, and Warner Brothers of course but I'm wondering have have local streamers been as on board with this sort of thing like uh, uh, is there sort of stuff in the works with like screen Australia and stand to kind of work on that sort of basis or with with Australian product or any, anything on that basis? Yeah, there is. I mean, Stan has um, just gone from strength to strength. They're they're really quite, um, and you, given they're a slightly different beast to the, the big global streamers like Amazon or Netflix or Disney, um, they carry a huge amount of Australian content. They, they're obviously really passionate about that being one of their points of difference, which I think is fascinating. Um, and they've they've continued to grow their membership base. And I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure in Melbourne it's the same as it is in Sydney. There's often, when it, when Stan gets behind one of its Australian releases, there's bus sides and there's like mm-hmm. the promotion around some of the, the awareness-driving marketing activities are sensational. So um, I hope that that is going to continue. And um, it's interesting, There's a uh, the government has put out a green paper quite recently just to open the conversation around um, you know, the requirements of the streamers to um, put some of the money that they take from the local uh, or from local audiences back into the local screen sector. And it's it's kind of halfway halfway through its process of of um, 
you know, being debated, but it, it'll be interesting to see where that lands. And if you look to many countries in the world, they've taken a similar approach where there's a requirement of the streamers to put money back into the local production sector. So we'll see, maybe that will happen here too. Yeah, um, some more Australian Netflix original movies would be great. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just yeah, it's just kind of wondering whether that uh, that that would sort of have a flow on to the local um, local release patterns in terms of because I guess you know audiences have sort of migrated more to at home now. Um, mm. I also think that like as you were saying before, Anthony, about like the return to cinema. Of course, we all love cinema here, and going to the theatre has you know we've all missed it. We've been in now you know I've got a. Very very fancy home projector setup, but it still does not in any way compare to being actual cinema theatre. And I think that, like, it's lovely to – it's kind of reshaped, I think, how we, we kind of – what we decide to go see. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it's going to look mm. over the next few months. From, from a distribution perspective, like, what have you noticed so far about what is drawing people into cinemas post-lockdown um, or post you know, in, in this COVID normal world, um, wh- like obviously, we've, you know, there's been big hits like The Dry and, and, and Penguin Bloom. And I mean, The Dry's success has been off the chart, like freakish. Um, but in, in terms of, yeah, are, are, you, are, are you noticing anything that's sort of leading people back to the, in particular, that's, that's drawing people back to the cinema? Uh, it's a yeah, great question. I think that the, um, so what happened when a lot of the, the American studio films moved out and cinema started to reopen, and it's I think it's worth saying, which is, you know, it's probably, it may be evident, but Australia is one of the first territories in the world to be back to 100% mm-hmm. capacity. So there's mm-hmm. no, um, except in Perth where there may be some, you know, they're experiencing <laughs> another little shutdown. Yes. But there's, um, but cinemas have really, like we've, we've, we are very lucky to live in a country where our, you know, the COVID is currently less um having uh, less impact um but when when cinema started to reopen last year all of the american big blockbusters moved out there was a real opportunity for independent films not only australian films but just non-studio films to come in and there were hundreds of them like every mm. monday i kind of look at the box office numbers and for example this weekend there, there's 175 films that were screening in cinemas nationally so Whoa. there's always been a lot of product around and but then within that you kind of say well some of it's foreign language or it might be a bit more a bit less shiny blockbuster yeah. um but in the last couple of weeks we've seen um like Peter Rabbit 2 which is an Australian film Mortal Kombat which was shot here uh, actually the first the top 3 films in this last weekend were Mortal Kombat um Kong versus Godzilla and Peter Rabbit 2 and they're all Australian shot films or <laughs> you know Australian made films so um it's we do kind of we do box above our weight on that front as well. But I think now that we're seeing these big American um, blockbusters come back, that will give the other studios more confidence to move, you know, stuff that may have been pushed a lot further out up until you know um, possibly the next couple of months in Australia. So yeah, it's kind of I think that for the for the mainstream cinema goers they do love that big american kind of shiny blockbusters and um it's you mentioned the dry earlier we did an initiative in um in the new just in january called our summer of cinema and the dry was a centerpiece of of that campaign and i guess the problem with last year was because no one was going to the cinemas flick as as you mentioned it's only when you're in the cinema that you see trailers or you see posters Mm, and the the behaviour of falling out of cinema going was part of the problem. So, um, we yeah, we kind of worked with the distributors to launch a campaign just to help remind Australians that there's some really fantastic Australian content coming through in that, you know, summer period. And it was, yeah, hugely successful. It, it clearly demonstrated that Australian audiences have an appetite for great Aussie films. Oh, absolutely. Um, if you've just tuned in, this is a special broadcast of Primal Screen in collaboration with Melbourne Knowledge Week. We've been speaking to Anthony Grundy, the distribution manager of Screen Australia, about the impact of the global pandemic has had on our local film industry. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. Um, You're listening to Primal Screen, an evolving film industry on Triple R and Melbourne Knowledge Week's Digital Hub. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. 
Hello, you're listening and perhaps also watching Primal Screen's first ever live in conversation event in partnership with Melbourne Knowledge Week. This is Primal Screen, an evolving film industry with Paul Anthony Nelson and myself, Flick Ford. Uh, and just prior, we spoke with the distribution manager of Screen Australia, Anthony Grundy, about the impact the global pandemic has had on funding and distribution of Australian content. We're exploring the challenges that our local film industry has experienced with lockdowns and cinema restrictions and what we can expect in our new COVID normal reality. One of the key organisations in our film community is ACME, the Australian Centre of the Moving Image. Um, Starting out as the State Film Centre of Victoria, ACME is Australia's National Museum of Film, TV, Video Games, Digital Culture and Art. And earlier this year, ACME re-emerged from the wreckage of 2020 with a redesigned layout of their multi-platform museum, complete with a curated wall of objects, uh, structural installations and a living staircase. And joining us now is the Director of Film at ACME, Christy Matheson. Hello, Christy. Hi, lovely to be here. Um, It's so nice to have you on. Um, So, Paul, I know you went to the reopening of ACME, Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Paul's perhaps better place for it, but can you talk us through, Christy, how did that go with the, what was the process like on deciding what changes to make at ACME, what to remove, what to include? Just, um, yeah, talk us through it. Um, It's been a really long process in the making and obviously um, many, many colleagues have have driven the new exhibition. But logistically, our our exhibition had really come to the end of its life. Screen Worlds had been with us for 10 years and so it was really time for a revamp. Um, And so when we went into the process of thinking about how we would tell our story of the moving image, Uh, Curatorially, ACME made a very specific choice to prioritise First Peoples uh, stories as central to that exhibition and really looking at how we could unearth probably uh, not not sort of insignificant but lesser-known stories, you know, within the story of the moving image. Um, So for us it was important we um, engaged a First Peoples advisory group uh, that really led us through that curatorial process. Um, Our First Nations curators were embedded on that project. So there's a really um, important story that sits at the heart of the, the new exhibition. And, of course, we understood that we would never be able to fit the entire history of the moving image um, into one building, into this centrepiece exhibition. So we've really looked at how we develop this in conjunction with all of the other offers that sit across the museum, but really looking at what does it mean to be a multi-platform museum. So we have a wonderful um, uh, object that people can pick up for free when they come into the exhibition called The Lens, and it looks like a lovely little Viewmaster. And so with that, you can go around and collect items in the exhibition that you see. And then it's um, something that takes you into an online portal so that you have a chance to explore and engage and fall down many, many rabbit holes when you get home. So for us, it's not just about the visit you have to the exhibition and to our physical space. It's about really thinking about the museum as being something in its physical form and something in its digital form and how can we sort of expand people's curiosity across all of those zones. That's so beautiful and that's a lovely way to kind of characterise cinema. I mean, cinema is, of course, incredibly tactile and a lot of film nerds are obsessed with, like, all the different textures that are involved if you think about um, old film stock and things like that. That sounds wonderful. I actually have was not at the opening launch, but, Paul, I remember seeing your post about it and it's kind of fascinating. You've had very positive responses to the reopening, um, so congratulations. It's beautiful. <laughs> so much fun. And, yeah, I, I 100%. As somebody that uh, both visited and worked in Screen Worlds, I could say that very much hit the end of its life. And this is a revelation, this new one. It is uh, the story of the moving image is quite incredible. Yeah, and I think for us it's really about looking at uh, all of the many facets of the moving image but also having uh, experiences that are very um interactive and tactile, um, having moments of learning. But it's really for us, it's about how do we, you know, how do we start you in one place and hope that it sparks a curiosity, you know, Mm. give you enough information to really make you a curious consumer and what does that mean and how can we sort of look at this one moment to keep expanding on 
you know, fandom or on, you know, obsessions that we all have in this space. So I think for us that's the thing that we always circle back to. It's it's how can we get you excited about something else and then you will go off and, and make more choices. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think about how sometimes film spectatorship is seen as this very passive thing, which we all know it, it is not. Um, so it's lovely to think that when you enter those worlds, you get to kind of engage more or become this active participant. Um, I was kind of interested, and you've already sort of touched upon this a little bit, but how do you think that the idea of the moving image, how do you think that that's changed since Acme's inception? Well, I mean, I think that if you had have said to someone, you know, a decade ago that we would all be walking around with essentially a studio in our pocket, you you would never have believed that. You know, the idea that we now have the ability to not only consume but we have the ability to create and to broadcast, you know, from our own telephones. It's kind of, you know, it, it really is something that would have seemed like science fiction if someone had have said this to you in the year 2000. And so... It's got all this, you know, the, those incredible developments. It also puts a huge responsibility on all of us as consumers to uh, to really think about what does that mean and what responsibility comes with that. But for a museum such as Acme, it's really to um, to think about digital literacy in a very sort of meaningful way and how do we help consumers unpack the moving image. And, you know, that's everything from, you know, diving into fandom to recognising, you know, uh, voices that haven't been heard before. But it's also about this crucial role that the moving image is playing in, in democracy, in real time, in our lives. So, so I think that's a huge change and it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a brand new challenge for everyone. Um, and so I think the other thing that's really changed is we've got this new dialogue that's very exciting and is, for me, I think very optimistic about who gets to tell their stories and how we tell our stories. And, and the extension of that is who, who gets to be an audience, who gets to be a consumer. So these are kind of big sort of fundamental philosophical shifts that I think have happened not recently. They've been bubbling for some time, but it does feel like it's, it's an exciting time to be thinking about the moving image at the moment. I think, yeah, I think with this democratisation of the moving image in particular, I think the thing that makes me most optimistic is everybody should get to tell their story. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But then we also, uh, we, we do need to have that that conversation about how do we consume and how do we know, um, you know, how do, how do we know what those messages are and not that there are right messages and wrong messages or good stories or bad stories but it's more about um you know how do we all become I guess very analytical consumers as well Mm -hmm. I love also that when you're thinking about the curation of the screening programs and the exhibition, you're thinking about the consumer but it's also like what they then go on to make which I think is really lovely because you know, when we don't see ourselves represented on screen, there there is an impact of that. And if that's continually, if that continually happens, we do silence voices and we silence histories. So I think that that's, um, it's lovely that ACME is kind of aligning that, aligning itself with that responsibility that I think cinema does have to, to talk to a truth and truths perhaps, mm. like multiplicity of that. Um, yeah, and that extends into video games and all and yeah. all sorts of, you know, the whole gamut of the medium really. Yeah. I do love the fact that Acme has all these different bits. As a bit of a gamer fan myself, I love the fact that there's this real, um, yeah, like multitude of what we see as screen culture more mm. broadly. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're so. kind of myopic here on Tribal <laughs> Screen. We're very cinematic. <laughs> To a fault, but yes, but Acme is a broad church. That yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie. When uh, when it comes to video games, my my only use at Acme is to uh, be the person that can test if an idiot could play the game. Like I'm really <laughs> that is that is the only thing I can bring to the video game conversation. Sadly, yeah. true. I suppose, <laughs> like myself. Well, I suppose my interest in video games is actually the the way in which they're increasingly lending on cinematic form and coming into and changing also how we then, you know, they, they're in conversation at the moment, which I find so exciting. And, um, yeah, I just suppose I love the way that technology has changed to allow for that, um, which, yeah, I, that's just something um, 
<laughs> Just, but also, you know, flying I, a little I flag think, there. Yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, if we think about the games industry, you know, really, I mean, music and film and television don't hold a slight torch to, you know, the the engine that is the games industry and also, you know, the idea that we still you know, in some quarters may think of games as something that uh, te- it's just for teenagers or it's not about narrative. You know, these huge narrative structures and how we think about world building and stories mm. and, you know, it's not um, it's not inconceivable that there's things that um, other elements of the moving image w- uh, can and are learning from the games industry as well. Mm, absolutely. absolutely, yeah. And also I suppose those access points, you know, I think... Um, like you were saying, someone might come to Acme and maybe be more interested in the gaming and then get drawn over to the dark world of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lovely know. moment in the new exhibition where um, my exhibition colleagues uh, built a Foley room so that people could learn oh. how Foley <laughs> is made and so how. Cool. So it's kind of, and it, it sits quite adjacent, uh, you know, quite close to the video game section of the exhibition where you can sit there and play new and, um, you know, really wonderful independent games. So it's kind Kind of this lovely idea that you might drift from a foley room and then find yourself you know in front of the mad max car and then you might find yourself off playing a video game so it's it's quite nice to have all these worlds swimming very close together yeah yeah, yeah. find yourself being frustrated at in, in your 40s just like you were in your <laughs> teens and not being able to get dragon's <laughs> lair to work <laughs> Personal experience. <laughs> Fruit Ninja is about like the scope of my skill level, I'm afraid. It's kind of interesting with um, the reemergence of Acme and this new space that you have um, or how you've redesigned the space. It's kind of interesting because like we've all kind of come out of lockdown uh, looking, well, maybe speaking for myself, but feeling like very scrappy. I've spent like the, you know, a year in track pants. And so it's a bit odd that Acme has just kind of come out and with such a strong opening to what has been a horrible year. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the impact of, of the pandemic has actually had on, on Acme? Well, look, I mean, I can't state enough how incredibly uh, lucky, you know, myself and my colleagues um, have been in this time. You know, we when the pandemic hit, our museum was already closed um, and thanks to the Victorian government, we were closed for this redevelopment. So we had two years to plan our, ex, you know, our museum closing. We had two years to work out how to, to shut down and everyone else in our industry had the trauma of having to do that almost overnight. So we could not have been more fortunate. Um, and so for us it really meant that we... Um, we all knew how lucky we were. We all knew that we were so close to being finished, the the museum as well. So it sort of was this amazing uh, drive for us to just know that we had to, we had a good idea, we had it all in place, but I think it really pushed us all to really try and just knock it out of the park. Mm-hmm. We all worked incredibly hard for the, you know, for that whole time that we were closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did think really about, you know, this idea of, you know, we'd always been a museum that played in the physical and the digital space, but it really pushed us to kind of really dive into what does it mean to be a multi-platform museum? What is that genuine digital offer? How is it more than just, oh, here's a list of things you could watch? Or So I think we did a lot of deep thinking about that. We launched uh, Cinema 3, which is our online um, uh, film platform, which is an extension of our cinemas. We worked with our colleagues at Melbourne Cinematheque to do a virtual Cinematheque. We provided you know, lots of online learning. Um, But it was kind of great too to see, you know, how incredibly well our colleagues at MIF did an online festival. So Mm. we kind of, we played in that digital space. We thought a lot about the digital space. But, you know, for us, it was really about how could this moment sort of galvanise us as a, a, you know, as a community, an ACME family. and, And really it just made us want to make that opening kind of, just spectacular for everyone and a big celebration. Yeah. I know that um, I'm part of Melbourne Cinematheque and I think having the virtual Cinematheque during lockdown was wonderful and also, um, yeah, MIF being online. I was stunned at how seamless that was. Mm. The MIF. It was just wonderful and I feel like Perfect. I know we all had to do it from our houses mm. but it was kind of, you know, winter is not winter in Melbourne without <laughs> MIF and so it was so nice to feel like, oh, okay, it's not the same, but we can still have this. And it was really special and kind of, I don't know, things like that I feel did make people feel um, 
I don't know, just a bit jollied along when it was yes. getting very dark. Oh, absolutely. Because that was second lockdown by that point, wasn't it? That was kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were bit... really in the thick of it by then, yeah. And, you know, I've never been to a MIF opening night before where my partner and I ordered a massive cheese platter to have <laughs> while watching the film. So. I did once go to a MIF screening where, where the person sitting next to me proceeded to pull out a whole cheese board and Ooh. assemble it on this and I was, was like it this guy this is incredible. <laughs> so so maybe you need to just team up with that person oh. this year and be like, I've got a taste for cheese boards now. We're not going back. <laughs> I was actually delighted because I usually am lining up outside some theatre in the rain and I was loving the fact that I was in a tracksuit, matching tracksuit. I mm. bought it especially for myth. Um <laughs> In my bed, <laughs> watching films. It's <Yeah>. great. <laughs> Don't know what that says about me. Um, this is Primal Screen, an evolving film industry, our very first live in conversation and one of the first events for Melbourne Knowledge Week, uh, which started today. Uh, we've been speaking with Christy, Ma- Christy Matheson, the Director of Film at ACME, um, to find out more about some of the current exhibitions and resources and, and screen- film screenings at ACME. Um, you can head to acme.net.au. This is Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Primal Screen, an evolving film industry, a very special broadcast that we're doing in collaboration with Melbourne Knowledge Week. My name is Flick Ford and I'm joined by my co-host, Paul Anthony Nelson, for Primal Screen's first ever live in conversation here in Triple R Studios. Earlier we spoke with Screen Australia's Anthony Grundy and just prior we were joined by the Director of Film at Acme, Christy Matheson. Um, So tonight's show has been something of a pulse check on our local film industry in the aftermath of lockdowns and cinema closures. Um, And to explore that further, and I'd like to welcome our third and final guest, film reviewer for the ABC and general manager, a film programmer and general manager at the Astor, and my parents' favourite authority on film, Zach Hepburn. Welcome, Zach. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here with you. <laughs> We're very disappointed Kubrick hasn't joined us as yes. well, Zach. If you're not aware, Kubrick <laughs> is, is Zach's dog. He's currently <laughs> sleeping in the other room. We figured it was best oh. for uh, the auditory experience not to have the uh, motorboat snoring uh, <laughs> going on. So, uh, you know, we can have that for some audience participation later if you'd like, but for now, uh, you just got me. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll do. That'll it's do. past his bedtime. <laughs> It's got to be up early for those reviews on ABC. So last time we spoke on Primal Screen, Zach, it was at the start, I think, of the or maybe the end of the first lockdown. It's all time has become a circle, a flat circle mm-hmm. right now. But we did speak with you and and Christian um, about you know how cinemas are coping, like our local cinemas are coping. Um, and at that time, it was a lot of um, speculation. How has the last year been for you? Uh, look, it's certainly been a roller coaster ride. I think that's an understatement. I think that's the understatement of the year for everybody. But um, what I have found, and I think this has been what most of the people in the industry, particularly in Melbourne, have found, is that people want to go to the movies. People want that shared experience. You just have to have the film to pull them off the couch. And a lot of films, unfortunately, have been moved around. We know release dates have been, you know, arbitrarily moved around the entire calendar. For us at the Astor, uh, given that we don't really rely on new release content, it's actually been a really interesting experience seeing what retrospective titles draw people. And, you know, we've had some really great experiences. Uh, Star Wars is still drawing people into the cinema, you know, more than 40 years later. Uh, whereas a lot of films like, you know, we just played No Man Land in a double feature with three billboards and that had somewhat of a disappointing uh, turnout. So it, it, it's been a fantastic sort of a, almost like an audience kind of post-mortem in a way to, mm-hmm. to see what is drawing crowds, what is igniting people. I think in our arena, 
particularly the use of celluloid, uh, 35 millimeter and 70 millimeter prints, which obviously the Astra is renowned for using a lot. That's really been a huge draw card to get people back into the cinema, which makes sense because that isn't a cinema experience that you can't match at home. I don't, I don't care how fantastic your 4K television is, and I've got a, a decent 4K television, it is no match for a 70 millimeter print. And I think no. that's something that set in stone and that's something that will always be set in stone and that's why cinema I think is always going to be a vital sort of exhibition method. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a I've got a nice projector set up, but my cat meows every time um, John Travolta <laughs> comes on the screen. So <laughs> I have to go to the cinema to avoid him. Yeah, unless you're Quentin Tarantino, you're going to the cinema. <laughs> True. Exactly. I mean, like, look, it's been it's been a fascinating experience uh, re-engaging with customers too. I mean, mm. obviously when we spoke first, no one knew what the environment was going to be like. And I think one of the things that's been so fantastic is seeing how great audiences have been with the changing dynamics, you know, masks, no masks, uh, distancing, no distancing. So it, it's been a really fantastic experience seeing that audiences want to embrace their environment. I mean, this restaurants that's going to uh, spaces uh, as well as cinemas and that's what I think is going to be the saviour of this experience you know of these collective experiences people engaging with the changing dynamics Mm -hmm. making sure the landscape that they want to be a part of actually endures and I think the only way we can all do that is obviously by playing a part so but particularly in cinemas you know it's a big ask we're doing for a double feature at the Astor uh, when we when we reopened uh, in in late November, you know uh, there was twenty people, eleven hundred seat theatre, uh, all wearing masks, all distanced out, uh, and now we're back up to no masks and and full capacity. So you know it, it's an incredible experience to be able to see how audiences have engaged with those different changing parameters. Yeah, has you know you made some predictions when you were last on the show about that. Has it actually, have they, have the audiences returned in the way that you were expecting or you were, you know, has it come back quicker than you thought or, or has it taken longer? It, it's a good good question. Uh, I think, you know, it, it fluctuates and we're, we're, we're seeing that more so than ever. I mean, the Aster was always a, a swings around about sort of location, you know. Yeah. Uh, you could have 900 people in one night and 10 people in the other night. And, I mean, that's just the nature of, of, of repertory programming because you don't really know what's going to kind of hit the zeitgeist at any given time. Uh, I feel for us it, it, it's certainly been a bit of a, a comfort thing. Uh, people mm. want to go and have a, an experience, but they also want to have an experience that they know is going to be worth their time. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, we're also sort of deprived of experiences at the moment that we really want to make sure what we do is what we want to do. Mm. And going to see 2001 Space Odyssey in 70mm, which we just played recently for the cinema's uh, 85th birthday, I was astounded by the turnout we had for that. We had close to 300 people in the cinema for that. That wasn't even on our, our usual calendar. It was sort of like an, an added session because uh, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to do it or not given all the changing sort of circumstances. So we didn't really plan for a large-scale 85th celebration. We just thought we'll put a film on that we know everyone loves that's sort of synonymous with the Astor and, and hopefully, you know, they will come as the old field of dreams adage goes. But, um, you know, I think that really personified for me the fact that people want to go, people want to have an experience. And, and, and seeing something like 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Astor in 70 mil. I mean, if that's not a Melbourne film scene experience, I don't know what is. <laughs> so it, it's nice that people are embracing it. And we've had a lot of first-time visitors too. I think, you know, oh, wow. funnily enough, people have actually sought out new areas to, to see content, new experiences. Um, you know, I think before there was a lot of kind of white noise on. Uh, now people have really sort of honed in on, on what they want to do and, and how they want to spend their time out of the house. So, uh, no, look, it, in terms of being a little kind of worried, I think when we spoke before, I think everyone was a little bit sort of cautious about how we were going to proceed. We've been incredibly fortunate. I mean, you know, snap lockdowns aside, uh, you know, I think we're really in a good space. And it's just so heartwarming to see the film-going culture in Melbourne so animated and so alive. I think we're really excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think actually, if anything, it's the whole absence makes the heart grow fonder. I, I honestly feel as though when it was taken away from us, you know, you just realise how much a part of that weekly 
for me weekly, I suppose mm. for both of us, weekly cinema going and um, yeah, I think it was really missed. And I, I wonder whether, you know, usually in times of uh, financial difficulty, sometimes there's a tendency to go with what's safe. So there's this idea of like, you know, potentially the sequels are going to be popular because it's like a known quantity. So when films are being created, they're like, oh, that's a safe bet or if it's a franchise. Um, and I wondered whether, you know, at the Asta, you, you screen all these like retro films. I wonder if people coming back, you're, you're having higher numbers at, at things like 2001 or, 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 you know, Star Wars because it's a known thing. And so people, maybe if they have, you know, lost their job during lockdown, which happened to a lot of us, um, maybe they're just wanting a more sure thing. So I, I wonder if you'll see a change in spectate, you know, what we're choosing to see and wanting to see on the big screen. I, I think that's a great point because, like, you know, I think, We've always been somewhat experimental with our with our programming. We've always done you know strange double features or, or, or things that uh, sort of challenge the audience members. Sometimes mm. we referred to our just summer past calendar as the the, the, the calendar of comfort, <laughs> uh, where we had you know all Indiana Jones, Empire Strikes Back, all, yeah. all these classic films, two thousand one. Uh, you know everything that you you know and love about the Aster. We put that on a sheet of paper to be able to sort of draw you back in, and I think. Audiences really do love that sort of comfort, but they, they like that sort of warm embrace of something that they've experienced before. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that will probably continue. Uh, not that we won't be doing anything, you know, more esoteric. We have the Devils coming up in 35mm, which probably hasn't been screened in a cinema in the last, I, I can't tell you, because it's been on a booking embargo for so long. So we're, we're trying to, like, kind of ease... Uh, Don't you have, like, a Mexican but... sexploitation double coming up as well? <laughs> we have a Mexican wrestler exploitation double coming up, mm. which, you know... Me, uh, oh, but let's try it, Paul. Who knows? Uh, you, you never know unless you try <laughs> Nothing ventured, nothing gains. Eh? I actually did my honors thesis on Mexican cinema, and a chapter was dedicated to Mexican wrestling. So, get down to the Lu- 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 Luchador cinema could be ripe for a comeback post COVID. Who knows? So, um, hey, they're all wearing masks. But, uh, I think you know uh, we're constantly being reactionary to this thing. You know, yeah. everything uh, we do is a learning process. You're essentially relearning your job. We, we relearned it in the way we were dealing with the front of house environment and that stems through to a programming sort of environment. And I think, you know, you just have to listen to what is out there. You've got to kind of put your ear to the floor and go with what the audience want. And Mm -hmm. if that is comfort cinema now, that's how somewhere like the Asta sort of survives, that we can offer Mm -hmm. that that sort of content. Uh, We've also got some live music coming up too. We're trying to pivot. Oh, cool. You know, having a space that that's an environment that's large that people know, and, and having these sort of areas that you can tap into is where it's going to flourish. And even even you know, in the early days of COVID, I said, you know, the cinema outlasted World War Two, uh, and I think you know, if anything, the Astor is an endurance house. Like it, it will go through things, and I think that's something that we've seen through this uh, certain period we're in now is that people want the place to prosper and they will do it by supporting it. So I think that's that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a big part of it is also identity. We've been we've been uh, all through so much, but I, I think I honestly, from being in Melbourne during this time, feel a lot closer to Melbourne and particularly the Melbourne film industry. And one of the ways in which we, we show our support is by showing up to these screenings, by, you know, <laughs> buying merch or, or you know, I, I think that there is a real, um, yeah, I think the community are wanting to, where, where possible, to give that kind of support. I mean, obviously, talking to Chrissy just previously, uh, I was at some Wong Kar Wai sessions, I and mean, they were fantastically attended. And I think, you mm. know, institutions and branding last with people. And if you yeah. have a connection to your audience, if you have a, a dialogue with your audience, they'll remember that. And I think oh, that's something that the Aster always was so good at, even prior to my sort of tenure there. They had a, a real connection with the audience. There was a dialogue with the audience. They knew what the audience wanted. Uh, it's not just this sort of amorphous uh, cinematic blobs sort of churning out content to you. There's a real connection to their audience and they want to mm. have a dialogue knowing what the audience wants to see and presenting it in a way that we know the audience want to see it in. So it, it's a real back and forth. And I think audience members are really receptive to that. Mm, absolutely. And I think like the curating is also an education. I, I, 
feel like there's, you know, you find you, you kind of hopefully are sometimes challenged by film programming um, and it introduces you to, to new material. And we definitely try to do that on Primal Screen. Yeah, and the Astor are doing that as well, coming up with your uh, David Lynch pairings, which is fantastic, <laughs> coming up on Friday night. Well, I've been working on that for some time. I mean, uh, we did a Lynch retrospective uh, a couple of years back where we did, like, you know, the, the whole chronological uh, filmography. This time around, I thought, well, we want to do it again. We want to do something a little bit different. So the concept of, of pairing uh, a Lynch film with a film that's either been directly influenced by Lynch or has been a direct influence on Lynch, uh, I thought that was something really unique and something you don't see very often. And, I mean, and the idea is that, you know, very few venues in Melbourne do double features. Mm. So the idea that the double feature can be a conversation between two films, I think that was a really exciting thing for me and, and something we haven't done before. So uh, our first session of that is this Friday, uh, kicking off with a razor head and some short films of Lynch. Um, my personal favourite double that we have in that kind of Lynch stream is uh, June on 35mm paired with under the end. I just, you know, those films shouldn't work together. But, so I just I just really love it. Under the skin and dune. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't have paid those, but I'm very excited to check that out. Um, look, if you well get down to the Astra on Friday, that's I suppose the first takeaway. Um, but for listeners and viewers who have uh, just tuned in, this is Primal Screen, an evolving film industry with Paul Anthony Nelson and myself, Flick Ford, and we have just been speaking with film critic, film programmer, and cinema manager at the Astra. Zach Hepburn. Um, thanks very much for your time, Zach. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks, Eves. Always lovely, to, always lovely to be with you, folks. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Um, so you've been listening to a special Live in Conversation event here on Triple R in partnership with Melbourne Knowledge Week. This has been Primal Screen, an evolving film industry. A big, big thank you to our guests, Screen Australia's Anthony Grundy, Acme's Christy Matheson, and the Astors' Zach Hepburn. Thank you also to our panel operator, Carl Chapman, events producer, Bez Zodair, uh, Dan Dare for filming us tonight, uh, Talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy and our programming and content manager Beck Hornsby and to good old Morty Osborne who will be editing this um, for our podcast. And um, I suppose just obviously thank you to Melbourne Knowledge Week for partnering with us for this event. Um, and, of course, thank you to all of our listeners and viewers um, for watching this event via the Triple R website or the Digital Hub. Um, events like this are really only possible uh, to our, uh, because of our sponsors and our amazing subscribers. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not a subscriber yet, April is a wonderful month uh, to do that. Um, there's five days left of April Amnesty um, and there's stacks of amazing prizes up for grabs. Um, so you should actually check out, to go head straight to triplerr.org.au to subscribe or donate. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 